Well, as I said, we are in 1 Corinthians this morning, so turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and let me pray before the reading and preaching of God's Word. Dear Lord, we are often uh, dull of heart in hearing things about you. We are often dull in our ears of faith, and so we, we ask that you would open our ears to hear. You would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to listen and receive and obey your word. We pray that you would use the law of your word to cut our hearts, to pierce our hearts over our sins, and that you would use the proclamation of the gospel to heal us and to mend us and to nourish us by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The presidential campaign season is well underway. Did you know that? <laughs> It's well underway, and both of the political parties have their nominees. It will be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. And there will be a few third uh, party, I guess third and fourth and fifth party candidates as well. And if you've been paying attention, you've noticed that they've shifted a little bit in their approach now to the campaign. In the primary season, you uh, are focused in on your particular party, shoring up your party so that you can get the nomination. Uh, but now they're beginning to try and broaden their appeal to a, to a larger audience. They're trying to build coalitions for themselves, trying to form this people for themselves and their parties so that they can win this election. And what means will they use to accomplish this? They may use um, promises of hope for a better future. They may use fear, they may use anger, they may use certain gimmicks or slogans to bring people over to their sides. But regardless of what means they use to build these coalitions, one thing has become increasingly clear to me. This campaign season has reminded me, and hopefully you as well, that we belong to another coalition. And more accurately, we belong to another kingdom and to another king. For God is forming a people for himself. He's working even today to bring people into his kingdom. But he won't do so by uh, temporary or empty promises of a better future. He will not do so by fear or hatred. He will not do so by giving hope for a better here and now. Rather, God is forming his people by the proclamation of the gospel, by the proclamation of his word and the proclamation of Christ who is crucified for sinners. He is forming his people by the grace and the peace that are found in Jesus Christ. I once saw a church sign that said, building God's kingdom one heart at a time. And I wanted to change that just a little bit. I wanted it to say, God building his kingdom one heart at a time. So it would reflect who it is actually that is doing the hard work of growing his kingdom. And this is our theme for this morning. God is forming a holy people for himself by the grace and peace that Jesus brings. And he's doing so in the midst of a broken world so that we might live for and reflect his glory to others. God doesn't set us apart in a monastery to, to work on us. He doesn't send us off to a camp for you know, a few weeks to work on us and to grow us into his people, to make us holy 
even though you don't you wish he did sometimes we could just get away sometimes we could be secluded isolated in uh, a monastery we, we we know it wouldn't help ultimately that there's enough indwelling sin in ourselves where we would ruin it but no in god's wisdom he forms his people together in the midst of the ugliness and the brokenness in the midst of the sinfulness and the heartbreak of this fallen world. For it is then that his glory is seen as we lean on each other in times of distress. It's then that God's glory is seen as we trust in him in the midst of despair and temptation. Then his glory is seen as his people in the midst of the ugliness of this life, give witness to the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So look at our text, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. From these few verses, I want us to to think about three things concerning God's church in Corinth. I want you to notice it's planter, its peculiarity and its provision. Its planter, its peculiarity, and its provision. So as we consider these things, we will see that this isn't just the story of the Corinthian church. This isn't just the story of a church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. It's our story too. We are called up in this story too of God forming a people for himself. God is forming us as his holy people together with his holy people all throughout the world and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first consider the planter of this church in Corinth. Paul says in verse 1 that he is called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Sosthenes was there with him, a dear brother of his and of the Corinthians. There will be some difficult and important things Paul will be saying in this letter. They might be tempted, the Corinthians might be tempted to dismiss him or ignore him or to ignore his instructions. They will be hard for them to hear some of these things. So Paul opens this letter in the ordinary way of his time, but with a twist. He doesn't just introduce himself. He announces that he is an apostle. He is called to be an apostle, one who is sent out and given a certain authority from God. He is a spokesman of God, not just giving his own opinion on things. And so they should listen up. They should hear the words that he is saying, not simply as his words, but the words of God. And he wasn't just a self-appointed leader. He didn't choose this. Rather, it was chosen for him. And Paul was chosen for it. Paul was called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and not by his own. Remember, if Paul had been left to his own will, he'd have been going door-to-door still, dragging Christians off by their collars, off to prison and to their deaths. 
But that all changed when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The risen Christ appeared to him. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. Even as he was on his way to persecute more Christians, Jesus met him and he was changed. And the Lord announced to Ananias, the man who would meet and baptize Paul, this man is my chosen instrument. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And after a time, the church in Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting when the Holy Spirit spoke. And he said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So on their journeys, they went to Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch. Iconium, Lystra, they were traveling all around and Derby preaching the gospel as they went. And then Paul went to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens before finally coming to this city called Corinth. There he met Aquila and Priscilla and he preached to the Jews until they, they got angry and started roughing, roughing him up. So Paul said, forget it then, I'll just preach to the Gentiles. I'll devote myself to preaching to the Gentiles from now on. But even though there was opposition, there was fruit too. We read about uh, Crispus. What a great name that is, right? We read about Crispus, the leader of the synagogue there in Corinth, and he and his family, his whole household, believed in the Lord at the preaching of the gospel. And many of the Corinthians, we read, who heard Paul believed and were baptized. But even in the midst of the fruit, Paul must have still experienced some frustration and some uh, fear. He must have been worn down because there was one night when the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. In Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision and he says, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. I have a wonderful memory of about a year ago after we had moved into our home in Wake Forest. Uh, The grass had gotten long, and you you probably know that same dread that I feel sometimes. You know at the end of the day you're going to get home, and you're going to have to mow the grass. And it's going to be hot, and it's going to be hard work. And so I was having that fear. I was thinking those those things through as I was pulling into the neighborhood. I come If you've been to my house, you come down to the stop sign, you stop. Come to a complete stop. And then you go uh, past that, and my house is down on the right. As I came down to my house, I saw half of the lawn had already been mowed. My precious son had already been working as I got home. And this sense of relief came over me. I don't have that much work to do. There's still work to do left. I still have to weed eat and blow the yard. There's still some left to uh, be mowed. And yet... He's already been at work. He's already been working, and I don't have as much to do myself. And when God spoke to Paul, I think it was as if he was saying, Paul, don't fear. Keep preaching, because I'll let you in on a little secret. I've already been here. I've already been working. I've already been working in the hearts of men and women and children, and I have many people in this city. Paul is the apostle of Jesus Christ, but he's not the planter of the church in Corinth. God is the planter. For it was God who was at work 
uh, before Paul even got there. And as Paul preached the gospel, it was God who was at work underneath and in and all around the preaching of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, I am not the planter of Christ Church Rollsville. And Daniel wasn't the planter of Christ Church Rollsville. And none of you were the planters of Christ Church Rollsville. God is the planter of Christ Church Rollsville. Before an idea even came up among the elders at Christ's Covenant Church in Raleigh, the church who planted us, before you had the desire to be a part of this, before any of that, God had been at work in Rollsville for a long time. Before we rented this space and started meeting here, God had been working. Now we still we have work to do. We must keep preaching the gospel. We must, must keep loving People loving our neighbors and showing hospitality to those around us. There is still work to be done. But knowing that God is working and has been working and will work, well, this gives us great encouragement. This gives us great hope and strength. So look, as as you seek to love and engage your neighbors, think about this. God has already been at work. He's already been there. As we try and engage with our town in Rollsville Elementary School, God has already been at work there. As we give witness to Christ and His work on the cross for sinners, God has already been at work. And knowing this does two things for us. First, it takes the pressure off of us. So you might feel there's nothing much I can really accomplish. There's nothing much I can really contribute to this work in Rollsville or in my neighborhood. I'm not a good speaker. I, I get... Afraid when I try to talk to other people about spiritual things. But if we know that God is working in the midst of our witness, it takes the pressure off of us. For if God is at work, then we know that His work will be primary and ours will be secondary. It all hinges on what God does and on what God wants to do for His glory, not ultimately on us. And second, knowing that God is at work gives us strength and encouragement. Underneath every witness to Christ, behind every cup of cold water, within every act of kindness, the Holy Spirit of God is at work. So we can have confidence that God will work through our obedience. And far from making us passive, thinking God will do all the work for us, it actually makes us bold and active in working for God's glory. Paul was called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, but it was by the will of God to go to work where God had already been at work. God planted the church in Corinth. That's the first thing, the planter of this church. But second, God is making it peculiar. Peculiar means unusual. So we saw the church's planter. Now look at the church's peculiarity. Bonus points if you spell it right in your notes. Look at verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this was the church of God in Corinth, in a particular place. Now one of the reasons I thought, that 1 Corinthians would be a good book to study. It's just how similar it seems their world is to ours living near the city of Raleigh. Some of us living in Raleigh. Corinth was a happening place. Young professionals and hipsters would have loved Corinth. It had all the excitement of a bustling city in America. 
It had prime geographic location. It was a center for international trade. It had almost an endless supply of water, and it hosted the Isthmian Games, which took place every other year, the years before the Olympic Games and the year after the Olympic Games. So they raced chariots, they wrestled, they boxed, and they even had uh, music and poetry competitions. One event was called the Pancration, which was basically an ancient incarnation of the UFC. The only rules were you couldn't gouge out eyes or bite, (laughs) except apparently in Sparta. You could do those things in Sparta. The only rules there were there were no rules. So all this excitement, uh, this business and trade, this culture, sporting events, uh, economic prosperity, all of these things combined to make Corinth an exciting place to live, to visit. But as one scholar, Anthony Thistleton, points out, this sets the stage for regarding Corinth as a deeply competitive, self-sufficient, and entrepreneurial culture marked by ambitions to succeed. And what we nowadays term a cast of mind shaped by consumerism. As you might expect also, all these things resulted in a great mixture of people and cultures and religions. It was very pluralistic. It also resulted, as you might imagine, in all kinds of greed and immorality. Right? Think about the great sporting events and uh, throughout our culture and how, much, how many reports there are of the immorality that goes on in the midst of those things. And so Paul came to Corinth, he says, in weakness and with great fear and trembling for the gospel of a humiliated, crucified Christ, Thistleson says, was an affront to people who cherished success and loved winners. So this is what sets up the peculiarity of God's church in Corinth. It would be different. It would be unusual. It would not be like the surrounding culture. The church was unusual first in that it belonged to God. It was in Corinth, but it was not to be of Corinth. It was of God. Second, the church was unusual in that they had been sanctified by Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And third, they have an unusual connection with other believers, not simply in Corinth, but also around the world. And their common characteristic was this. They call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. These expressions Paul uses bring out the idea that the church in Corinth has been set apart from the culture in Corinth. They've been set apart from the culture around them as God's special possession and for his service. And isn't this the idea we see throughout Scripture? From the very beginning, God sets his people apart from the world. He calls them out and separates them as his holy people. And Paul applies this terminology, God's holy people to Gentile believers in Christ. They are sanctified. They are his. They are holy. They are his holy people. And friends, that's what we are in Christ. We are his holy people. And the reason this would be so unusual or peculiar is it would set them in contrast to the culture around them. Instead of being self-sufficient, the church would recognize it was utterly dependent upon God. Instead of indulging in immorality and greed, the church would recognize who it was in Christ and love him. 
instead of falling prey to individualism, the church would recognize its spiritual connection to all other believers throughout the world. But there was a problem in Corinthians. What do you know the Corinthians for? Their sad example, right? Their immorality. They are not living in line with who they are in Christ. See, what Paul is doing in this introduction is is laying out some of the themes that will become more pronounced as we get into the letter. And this theme occupies much of the letter. How will God's church live for His glory in the midst of an ungodly society? That's the question I think Paul has in mind with Corinthians. And that's the question for us as well. How will we as God's church live for God's glory in such a swampy society? Perhaps what's most amazing about Paul's words to the Corinthians is what we read in the rest of the letter. You know all about it. This is a church that doesn't do anything about a man having a relationship with his stepmother. They prize their own individual fulfillment instead of loving one another. They get drunk at communion and eat all the food before some of the church members arrive. All of these things and more, and yet Paul calls them saints. What's with that? He calls them saints. He calls them saints not because they lived it out the way that they should have, but because they trusted in Christ, in His life and death and resurrection for them. And it was through their faith in Christ that God looked on them as holy in His sight. So what Paul is doing through this letter is calling them back to repentance. Live in line with who you are in Christ. Paul goes on to say a lot of things throughout this letter in regards to repentance, but it all starts here with this greeting and this reminder of who they are in Jesus Christ. And so if we are going to live as God's church for God's glory in the midst of this godly, godless culture, we need to have it firmly fixed in our minds who we are and whose we are. We need to know who we are in Christ. So who are we? In Christ we have been made holy, justified before God, righteous in His sight. In Christ we have been gathered not simply as individuals into a kingdom, we've been gathered into a family. We have become the sons and daughters of God Himself, adopted into His family. Paul says, don't you understand who you are in Christ? Pastor John MacArthur tells the story of a time he went to jail as a kid he went to Sears and he found he was feeling rebellious I guess and he found the only thing that wasn't really uh, supervised was were the cigars and the cigar lighters and so he went to steal some packs of cigars and cigar lighters and it sounds cliche but his father who was a pastor was out playing golf with uh, his deacons when he got the word and he thought it must have been some sort of mix-up but no He really tried to steal those cigars. And MacArthur says the question that he kept getting after this event was, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who your father is? How could you have done something like this? Don't you know who you are? And when we consider who our father is and who we are in Christ and what we have gained by being brought into his family, how could we ever think of living in a way that dishonors him? 
Because that's not who we are. That's not characteristic of who we have become and who we are becoming in Christ. We must know who we are in Christ. Our identity. We are a peculiar people. As the Apostle Paul, as the Apostle Peter reminds us, you are a chosen people, people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And so we must walk in line with who we are. We must bring our thoughts, words, and actions in line with our identity. So consider for you, for your own Self right now. Consider this. In what ways are you behaving? In what ways are you speaking? In what ways have your thoughts taken on those of the culture? Those of the sinful culture around you? In what ways have you acclimated yourselves to the culture and taken on their characteristics and traits rather than the traits and characteristics of your father? And of your brother, Jesus Christ. Because God's calling us to repentance in these things. He's calling us to to live in line with who we are in Christ. To live in line with our holiness, our justification. To walk and to live for His glory. Rather than for our, our own pleasure or desires. But we won't simply do this by our own strength. We won't simply... Put away these things just by trying harder or being a, a re, making a rededication or a recommitment to do these things better. To think more purely, to act more purely, to speak more purely. Rather, we do it by the same strength that brought us into the family of God in the first place. By the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We've seen the church's planter, its particularity, and now look at its provision the provision that God gives for His church. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This too follows the usual opening of a letter during Paul's time. But again, he gives it a Christian twist. Instead of simply saying greetings to you, he says grace and peace to you. How had the Corinthians been made holy before the Lord? In his sight? How had they come into a relationship with God? How had they come into his family? It was through the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace is undeserved, unmerited favor and love. And the same grace that God had given them to make the Corinthians his sons and daughters is what they would need to live for his glory in the midst of their culture. It's what they would need to live in light of who they were in Christ. Grace is undeserved favor. Peace is complete wholeness. The late Richard John Newhouse said of this biblical word peace, it is tantamount to salvation. It means the bringing together of what was separated, the picking up of the pieces, the healing of the wounds, the fulfillment of the incomplete, the overcoming of the forces of fragmentation by forgiving love. In short, Shalom is the content of the rule of God, the promised goal of pilgrim hope. And this kind of peace comes only when one has peace with God, which has been purchased by the blood of Christ. 
So you know the concept of having a personal relationship with God. Often someone might use this phrase to say that they have con- they're saying that they have come to a saving relationship with Him. But if you think about it, it's true that every single person in the world is in a personal relationship with God. It's just important to know what kind of relationship that is. You are either in a personal relationship of enmity with God, or you are in a personal relationship of peace with God. By nature and by our own wills, we are at enmity with God. Think about what Tracy read this morning. About how we once walked in the ungodliness of this world, in the sinfulness of our own minds. But Christ purchased peace on the cross for the enemies of God. He offered up his life of obedience as a thank offering to God and his life of sacrifice as a guilt offering for sinners. And by Jesus' sacrifice, those who were once far away from God have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been brought near in a loving relationship through faith in Christ. When we who are Christians begin to become of the world rather than in the world, you can be sure that we have forgotten something of the privileges of being sons and daughters of God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have forgotten something of the privileges, of the benefits, of what it means to be in the family of God. Kevin Azell is the president of the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he champions, of course, in that role, church planting and evangelism. But not only does he champion those things, he also is a champion for adoption. In fact, he and his wife, Lynette, have adopted three children, each from uh, different nations. And several years ago, I heard him tell the story of when they adopted their son, John Michael Izell, from an orphanage in the Philippines. They were in the hotel together, and John Michael was experiencing all kinds of new things, things he had never experienced before. And as they were in the hotel together, Kevin turned on the water in the faucet, the hot water in the faucet. And he had John Michael put his hands underneath the hot water, and he felt hot water for the first time in his life. And his eyes lit up and his face lit up, and he said, that is wonderful. In amazement. He had such wonder and joy and amazement. It's something we take for granted. So insignificant to us. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we take many things for granted in this life, but let us never take for granted the privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. Let us not forget the privilege of our identity in Christ. He has purchased us as his people by his grace. He has given us peace with God. And he has caused us to become sons and daughters of God. And we cry out, Abba, Father. Though we forget the wonder of many things, let us never forget the wonder of that. Let our hearts Ring with those words, this is wonderful that we might live in light of his grace in the midst of this ungodly culture. Let us pray to the Lord.